Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hi, this is Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you leader to leader about something important. As leaders, especially at times of rapid change and uncertainty, it's easy to live and act from a place of fear. If we're not careful, that fear can paralyze us and keep us from effectively leading at work, at home, and in every relationship. But that doesn't have to be the case. My friend Ben Straub, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions, a growth architecture firm that helps leaders and organizations accelerate revenue and maximize impact through data-driven strategies, has just released a great new resource for leaders. It's called Eight Things Leaders Say When They Fear Change and How to Confront Those Fears. This five-page resource gives you eight of the most frequent responses we as leaders have when we experience fear and the specific steps and language that you can use to move beyond fear to action. Click the link in the episode show notes to get this resource today. You'll be a better leader tomorrow because of it. Hey, this is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm here today with my colleague and co-conspirator, Roy Jones. Hey, Roy, how are you? Good. Nice to be with you, Andrew. It's going to be a fun conversation with, with Kashina. I'm so excited about it. Yeah, so I, I am as well. So we're here today with Kashana Palmer, who is the CEO of Kashana & Co., uh, founder of The Rooted Collaborative and author of Hey, I'm New Here. And all around, if, if you are anywhere on social media and, and you're a fundraiser or a nonprofit leader and you don't know who she is, I think you live under a rock. So Kashana, welcome to the show today. Oh, thank you for uh, having me. <laughs> the record, I want you to know, you're dealing with uh, one guy here who struggles with ADHD, dyslexia. When I look at your site and I say, I, and you say you can teach me to focus, I am here to learn. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it is because I too struggled with all of the things. I am like a kitten chasing a ball of yarn all the time. <laughs> oh man, I, I don't know what I'm in for in this conversation. Oh my God. <laughs> but Andrew, thank you for having me, Roy. Thank you for having me today. I'm super excited to share time and space with the both of you. Yeah, we're, we're grateful for your time today. I'm grateful that we were able to connect. I mean, you and I have never met other than trading messages on social media. I so know. kudos to the power of, of social media and LinkedIn and wherever else we might have connected. We had initially thought that we would be talking broadly about nonprofit leadership. And I think there's still some space for that. But, um, you know, we're recording this on June 5th of 2020. And given what's gone on in the last two weeks with the senseless murder of George Floyd and the resulting protests that have happened spontaneously across the country, you know, you and I had a quick conversation, or, or I did with Tiffany on your team, about taking this time and dedicating this podcast episode to really talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in our sector. And it's a topic that I think is, is underrepresented across most organizations. So I'm, I'm grateful uh, for your willingness to, to talk with us about that today. Absolutely. Happy, happy to do that and happy to lend where I can. As are we, and, and we're happy to learn and, and share this content across as much of the sectors we can reach. So, you know, with that said, I would love for us to start this conversation really thinking about boards and the C-suite, okay? Absolutely. And, you know, just sort of a, a, a raw discussion of, in light of everything that's gone on in the last couple of weeks, but really, I mean, this is one of those things where, like, I, I even feel like it's inappropriate to say that because it's not like there wasn't a lack of diversity and equity and inclusion. Correct. 
three weeks ago, right? Okay, hello, <laughs> hello somebody. So, so it feels even inappropriate to say that, but I don't know a better way to start the conversation. But, so, so you, you understand kind of, I think, where, where I'm trying yeah. to frame this. Let's talk a little bit about some concrete ways that leaders who are sitting in their shops today going, what the heck do I do tomorrow to address my staff, the people we serve, mm-hmm. our constituents, our board, and make sure that we are appropriately leaning into these issues and figuring out ways that we can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. That's a big, big opening there, big you know, concept, but yeah. talk, talk a little bit about what kind of things you think organizational leaders should be thinking about right now. I love that question. So first, you know, for those who are like listening and, or haven't heard the sound of my voice before, I'm Fashana Palmer. Um, and the work that I do is really centered around helping social sector professionals to live well and lead well. And part of the concept of being able to lead well is leading from a people-centered approach. And part of being able to lead from a people-centered approach is to be able to actually see your people. And so if you are a social sector leader right now, and it is Friday as of this taping, and you have not had a conversation with the Black employees in your organization, friend, you have missed the boat. Again, like you just keep running to the dock late. It's like when the last year for the first time, y'all, I went to Martha's Vineyard in the summer and had to get to the ferry on time and had our ticket to get on to the ferry to, to cross over. And I, I remember seeing people who had the ferry ticket for the 30 minutes before racing and then running everything in hand to get there on time so they could make that boat. And this is like that, you know, mm-hmm. like oftentimes we find ourselves packed up with stuff running to get to the boat and missing that opportunity to get on And it's not like a boat of popularity. And so as a leader, the thing that I want folks to be thinking about when I ask the question to leaders, what's keeping you up at night? What should be keeping you up at night is the psychological safety of your team Mm. across the board. And in this moment that has been exacerbated by a pandemic globally, it is exposing, and I saw this quote today, the virus of racism. Mm that is invisible and is pervasive and no home can be swathed across the top of the doorstep to, to, be, to get it skipped. Like it is literally the thing that seeps into your corners and your pores and you've got to have all the preventative measures already in deck, taking them on deck, taking them every day in order for you to have a hope of having an immune system strong enough to be able to resist the strain. And it's similar for leaders. And so the thing that I want leaders to be thinking about right now is what, not just what am I going to do on Monday or do tomorrow, but what am I going to do on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday? And how am I going to clearly articulate to my team enough with the nonsense in our organization, even if I, dear leader, have been a perpetrator of that nonsense to date? You know, and so I think that to me is a a big step one for leaders to acknowledge that they have team members who are excellent, who have been performing like they're doing a tap dance on stage to make folk comfortable. So if any, if both of you saw across the uh, social media all week, you've, and I even penned something on it, folks are tired. 
they're not tired because of the last 14 days. Right, they're right. tired because for many folks, and I'm 41, for every hour of every day for my professional career, I have had to make calculated choices and decisions about the things that I would say, about the ways that I showed up, about how I carried myself, about information that I would leak, about to show how sharp and how shiny and how agreeable I have been assimilating for a very long time. And y'all, the day that I realized, Kashana, what, what are you doing? What kind of performance are you doing? The day I woke up, if you think about the Matrix, friends, the day I took the pill <laughs> and, and began to see my place in space in this Matrix was not only eye-opening, but it was scary as all get out. So imagine then if you are a leader of color, and particularly a Black leader right now, whether you're an, you're an ED, a CEO, you lead a C-suite vertical, the fear that you walk with in being able to say, this is not okay, I'm making decisions this way, and now I have to now talk to my peers about the things that I have had to soft step for fill in the blank however long, so that I am able to progress and have other teammates make that progress. Yeah. So I know it's not a straight, a straight road to the answer you asked, but it's, it's all encompassing when you think about it. Yeah, for sure. And I, I suspect that in a conversation like this, nothing's going to be a straight road, right? There's so many complexities and, and so many, just, just so many layers to, to this topic that I, you know, I think we're, we're going to sort of meander through this conversation. And, and I think we just have to be okay with it. I think what Kishana said about, you know, it's waking up today and deciding, you know, how can I lean into this? How can I be part of the solution? And having those conversations with people on your staff and as importantly, looking at the organizational structure, uh, looking at, at uh, the board makeup, looking at policy to make sure that, uh, you know, that inclusion is a big part of what you do every week. You know, it's, it's, it's got to be intentional. You know, we at Eckert Connects, you know, we work with about 50,000 at-risk youth around the country, about 2,000 employees. You got to lean into these kind of issues uh, every week. It shouldn't be, okay, it's time for our diversity class at the annual meeting. But it, Absolutely. It, it, it's got to be something that you lean into every day to make it part of every practice uh, as you move forward. And one of the things that I hear a lot about, so I love what you just said, Roy. So there's a couple things. One, as the chief executive, whether you hold the title of executive director or chief executive officer, as the organization's chief executive, your main vein is to operationalize your mission. And there are very few organizations that are not people powered. And so built into your responsibility, baked into the foundation of the work you are required to do in operationalizing your mission is to make sure, to your point, Roy, that your practices, that your policies, all of it reflects, your norms reflect the very mission that you are trying to accelerate. That's right. You know, that's super critical. I think that's the thing. And I think there's another piece that bubbled up for me, and that is, um, you see a lot about transformational leadership, having high emotional intelligence, well, you know, well-documented, frameworked examples of what good leadership looks like. Well, also, good leadership is about being humble and about being vulnerable and about being able to say, yeah, I was yesterday days old when it finally bopped me over the head that I've been going down this road a long time and not really looking to my left or my right. Yeah. That, and that's, now here's, here's what I want to do about it. That, that's a big one right there. So let's, let's just be really real here. So, you know, 
we're, we're all on camera looking at each other right now. Everybody else is just listening to us. But, you know, we're two kind of old white dudes, right? And so. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, do you want me to co-sign that? And for, you know, I know Roy really well. We're both men of faith. I think we, we approach the world from slightly different than some others. Having said that, you know, when we start to talk about these issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's an aspect of a changing power dynamic that can be uh, frightening for, for people like us in our roles, right? Absolutely. Uh, all, all across, uh, not just our sector, but globally, right? But it's a really important conversation to have. And to your point, Kashana, if you are not, uh, as a leader, if you are not displaying and really living in that emotional intelligence and being willing to confront your own biases, your own belief systems and things like that, and, and change them when they need to be changed, then there's a big problem. But I think oftentimes, because of the way organizations are structured today, there aren't enough people who can effectively speak truth to that power, right? Just because they don't have a platform for it. So I'm, I'm curious to, to get your perspective uh, and just sort of the unvarnished uh, point of view of like, to those leaders, mm -hmm. what needs to be said today? To those leaders, I think listening, uh, first of all, if you're gonna say a thing, say to your team and particularly your black employees, I'm calling you in so that we can talk candidly because I plan to act on the suggestions you make. Because I promise you, many, many a team member has recommendations at the ready. <laughs> because part of learning very early on in your life how to assimilate means you have to study. So all of some of our favorite actors and actresses have British accents, but play in American movies. In order to be able to play an American character, you've got to study our moves, our dialect, what part of the country we should be from. So imagine that Kashana, someone that people have come to know and love, has been studying you your whole life, solely in the hope that I'll be able to grab my corner of the world and play nice. So to those leaders who are like, I want to be able to actually act on a thing now. Oh my God, I've got to do something. Typically that's our response to things like, one, oh my gosh, I have to do something. Two, oh my gosh, I don't want to look bad. Three, oh my gosh, I should be saying something. Four, oh my gosh, why haven't we said something? So we think about like the seven reasons that donors give. We have like probably the seven reasons that leaders <laughs> don't say a darn thing, right? Yep. And then, and, then, and then speak out of turn or write craziness or write some like completely bland, dry toast response. Lawyered, lawyered up response, yeah. Oh, very lawyered up. Oh, very lawyered up. But we see you. And so to me, it is the most candid, the most like, yeah, I messed that one up. What next? Not how can you teach me to be better? Because we are some learned, educated folks. And the same way you learned how to operate in your role, you can op learn how to operate to be a better person. And if, and you said that, Andrew, that you and Roy are a men of faith. I am a woman of faith as well. And so when I was really getting into my word, right, and you join, like, depending on where you are in the world, lots of churches now have uh, small groups. Mm -hmm. And so smaller groups of people that you get together, so you get to study the word and books and different things and you form community, et cetera. So when you're learning and you're getting in your word, you're getting in a book, you're getting in the thing you're studying, you become a student of that thing, not just so that you can repeat what you hear, but because you want to be able to engage intelligently and live out different practices of what you're studying with the body. Mm. 
And so if I bring that example across to what leaders should be doing, and leadership doesn't mean you sit at the helm of the organization. You can be a middle level leader. You can be on the senior cabinet. You can be a board member. What I'm suggesting is that folks have to get in the word. There is a, a tone of academic knowledge if that's your jam. There's a tone of more relaxed colloquial conversation in writing if that's your jam. There's a bunch of audio stuff you listen to if that's your jam. So however you get your information, whether you are experiential, whether you are visual or auditory, you can figure this out. And I don't have to be the person that points you there. So that you can come to conversations with more self-awareness and self and introspection that allows you to make space to have that beginner's mind that we seek to have when we learn something that may feel new to us. And you know, a used car, y'all, is new to the owner. I want you to know. They're still <laughs> going to get that thing shampooed and you get a whole new car refreshing. We know we do it, right? I got one in the driveway right now, yep. <laughs> new for you, fabulous. You know, so thinking about it the same way. So that's what I would suggest, you know, that folks are really taking their time to be introspective, to ask the question that they really want to know the answer to. Don't ask questions you don't, you don't really want to know the answer to. It's insulting. Mm -hmm. And to recognize that you are a, you are an educated individual who, when you need to learn something, you go and get the information you need. And this sure. is no different. You know, Kashana, it's, it's interesting, you know, you talk about embracing learning, you know, in that kind of intellectual piece of this thing. But, you know, one of the things you pointed out was, was listening and asking questions so that you can listen as opposed to asking questions while you already have an answer in your head. You're not really interested in really, you're just doing it to be nice. And I think, you know, learning to listen. And as you said, coming in line with the emotional intelligence piece of relationships is just, is just so important. And, you know, I have found everybody wants to be heard black, white, Red, yellow, it doesn't matter. We all want to be heard and listened to. And, you know, I know in, in, in my office, uh, it's a pretty diverse team. And, you know, because of uh, my personal challenges, which I pointed out at the beginning of this broadcast, I can't tell you how hard it is for me to focus and really listen because I'm thinking about the next meeting, the meeting after that. But I think that's the beginning of healing is learning to listen to one another and taking the time to do that. And I think that healing is such a, is such a weighted thing. So when you think about um, if either of you have had surgery, knee replacement, you got your meniscus scraped, tore an ACL, something your shoulder threw out from baseball, something has happened um, over the course of your life. And I know when I had surgery on my knee, it's now eight, seven years ago that I had surgery. But y'all, every time it rains, <laughs> my knee acts up, okay? So the thing about healing is, you might have had the surgery. You might have had the best doctors. You might have even put your whole thing into healing during that moment. But the scars and the scar tissue still sit beneath the surface, mm. waiting to be agitated. They don't mean any harm, you know, but they're there. And when outside things influence it, whether you don't eat right, your life has changed, your stress, the actual environment, all of a sudden that darn knee starts acting up again. And so... The thing about healing to understand is that you can come from a place of being seen and being heard and moving towards healing because action that movement is action and still have that residual stuff. That's why PTSD is a real thing. Sure. 
because you you might have forgotten the details of what happened, but the but the feeling remains, and things can be triggered. And so I think it's important just to name that even though you are reaching toward healing, and that is something I want to reach toward, that it does not erase the scar tissue and the fact that it'll flare up, and the fact that it's going to still need some attention and treatment, and you might have to switch up doctors to go see about it because you had another complication. <laughs> You know, so I hope folks who are listening, y'all come with me. I try to keep it to the things we understand truly. And we are, we've had that lived experience to kind of get to my point. No, for sure. And I mean, you know, as you're talking about that, you know, I think Roy's, uh, the organization Roy is with, they do a lot of work with kids in foster care, children who've been abused, things like that. So I, you know, I, I even, you know, think about the emotional trauma that someone, yes. you know, who is, you know, displaced um, as a child, you know, they can heal from it, like you said, but oftentimes, even as an adult, someone, something happens and someone goes, oh, that, that doesn't feel good, right? That exactly. brings up, even if I don't remember why, it, you know, so, so I, I, I totally hear where you're going there. And I think, it, you know, for me, what that reminds me of is that it requires a different level of intentionality mm-hmm. as we go through our day right? Every day, any day from everyone, right? Not just from the person who's been hurt, who has the, the scars, but from the other person in the room, right? Whether, whether I'm the person that hurt you or not, if I don't have a level of sensitivity to recognize the signs and understand that, you know, sometimes we're going to have to give each other a little bit different space to process differently or, or to, to just, you know, come together and say, we see this this issue, this whatever situation is we're discussing from a different perspective and we can respect one another for that. You know, but if we're not doing that, it just creates a scenario where all we're going to do is exacerbate that pain. Don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to go in a slightly different direction right now and talk about one of the other issues related to this in our sector, which I think is really around board composition Mm -hmm. and hiring and compensation practices. So, so, (laughs) um, you know, this is one of those things where, where people will say, yes, our organization, we, we have a diversity policy. We have, you know, we hire diversely, blah, blah, blah. We've got a special, you know, we we do everything on, you know, we, we promote certain things on Martin Luther King day. But, and I look around and I say, everybody on your board looks like me. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, wow. Yes. You have a diverse organization but all of your senior leadership oh, come on. only looks one way, right? Yes. Um, I mean, it happens, right? I walked into an organization once and I sat around a boardroom table and it was striking to me because the boardroom table, every chair was taken up by basically an old white guy. And then there was an outer ring around the outside of the room where the organization staff sat. And to a person, every person in the staff ring was Mm African-American. And I walked out of that room and I thought, you know, never before had I been in a room, a a nonprofit organization in a boardroom where the, the sort of, you know, us versus them kind of visualization was so heavy. Yeah. And, and it just, you know, it kind of shook me. I guess my first question is how do we get to a place where we don't just say, Yes, we're we're hiring diverse, you know, we're hiring ethnically diversely from a numbers perspective, right? But that we're being intentional about saying when there is a leadership opportunity open in our organization, when there is a board seat open, we're being really intentional 
about making sure that we approach that from a perspective of how do we increase the level of diverse perspectives on the board? How do we increase the, the diversity of voices at our you know, C-suite or what, wherever it might be missing? Give us some thoughts around that. So around the board composition part, that part is the one that is most loaded because it is so, it is, it is, it is de rigueur. It is, it is literally the thing that is the most normed in our sector. And it's the question that I feel like I get the most when I go to do board recruitment plans, <laughs> et cetera, for folks. Well, Kashana, we've got to have more diversity. Why though? Why? Is it a part of your value statement? Is it a part of your values framework? Is it a part of how you accelerate mission? Is it a part of the business case? Like really being able to drill into the why. And oftentimes, Andrew, when you were just naming like, and we have a value statement and we have it on the website. And we, I was like, check, check, check. When I start to hear the question and it is framed as a checkbox, like a checkbox question, then I want to probe and say, well, why do you want that though? Why, do, why does it need to have sure. ethnic and racial and gender diversity? Why is having one white woman on your board of 12 and saying, well, we are diverse. Look, we have a woman. Like, wh what is happening here? So I tend to push back to get to the why before I can problem solve for the how. And the reality of the situation is I have been on, um, I've been in, in the C-suite for a really long time. And so I've had the kind of career where I went from director of development really early to a chief development officer. So spent most of my career in-house on the executive suite. And I was almost always the only person of color and most definitely the only black woman. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I used to be like, wow, well, I guess that makes me, oh, I dare I say it, y'all, special, smart. I must be as, wow. And then one day I was like, there's nothing great about me being the only one here, like as a, like a, a flag I want to wave. This is insanity. And what I realized, and if we had a whole podcast to go into what is happening is that there are many professionals of color and in particular black and indigenous professionals who do just fine at the associate level at the analyst level even move up into mid-level management just fine great operators of the work and then when it is time to move up into that senior director managing director vp chief fill in the blank role all of a sudden it's a question of fit it's a question of readiness. It's a question of qualifications, certifications, designations. But time and time again, when I talk to my peers now, who are now all either EDs or their CEOs or their chief development officer of larger shops, many of them took that leap without needing any of that stuff. They wanted to try something new. And more pointedly, I remember when I wanted to switch from doing development and move into talent, I applied for a job as a chief talent officer. Now I've been, as I mentioned, on the chief suite for a long time, which means I've done strategic plans. I've done all of our salary costings. I've done realignment of staff. I mean, I've done financial projections, the number of things that you need to be able to manage and I've managed huge teams. So dealing with the front end and the back end of HR, not a stranger to, and at the chief level, you're not doing that anyway. It's strategy work. And the person who was interviewing me for that role, I have an initial conversation asked me if I had my SHRM, which is an HR designation, similar to a CFRE, but in HR field. And I said, well, no. I said, is that something that you'd want me to study for and get? I'm happy to get whatever designation that the job would require. But I said, does anybody else on the team who's in talent, who's dealing with the day-to-day -day work actually have a SHRM where it's really important to have it? And she said, no. And I said, well, how did you get into the role that you have now? 
And she said, oh, well, I wanted to try something new. And so I, you know, I talked to the CEO about trying my chops out differently and I was able to step into this role. Well, why would you require me to have a designation you do not have or seek <laughs> for a role you took on when you had less experience than I do now? How'd that go? What was the answer? You know, there was a hemming and a hawing and a dipping and a diving and a sputtering and a spitting. And she said, oh, you know, well, that's part of the reason why, Kashana, I wanted to bring on someone who has a designation because I don't have that. And I said to her, you know, I know I'm not going to get this job. I'm not interested in it actually anymore. Um, but I will tell you and name for you that what you just did was raise the bar for me that you didn't even have for yourself. And I said, I want you to be thinking about that if you can, as you're interviewing people for this role, because that is very telling of the practices and what is normed in your organization. And then I went on about my day. Okay. So I want to, I think that was really good stuff. I want to hone in on one thing. So when you were starting your response and you said that, you know, a lot of practitioners, people of color who are like analysts and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, operators. And then when they get to a certain point, you know, there's kind of that ceiling there. To what degree do you attribute part of that, or maybe you don't, to a lack of an internal advocate relationship for, for those people? Yeah, I think that's huge. I think having an internal advocate does play a part. And depending on the size of your organization or the type of organization you're in, it could play a huge part. And I think that what I have seen, and particularly when I talk with other professionals of color, and in particular Black professionals, is if you don't have a sponsor early in your career, a door opener who can vouch for you and make a way for you, the probability that you will actually make those kind of moves without lots of lumps, bumps, scrapes is actually really low. So lots of us know and understand how to seek out a mentor, someone who can show us the ropes from their perspective, but a sponsor is that next step. And I didn't even know early enough in my career that that's actually what was needed. I was just wondering, like, how did you get that job? Oh, somebody your dad went to school with and plays golf with now, called a friend, did a favor. My dad is not doing that. He doesn't, he, unless I'm calling to, to, for somebody to work at the Department of Corrections where he worked and retired from, like that, that was not our world. Yeah. And so having that internal advocate is critical to being able to make some moves because you need somebody to word you up to help you understand how things are working. But to Roy's earlier point, that thing about practice and policy, that is baked into organizations' DNA. Quick example of that, when you have a policy that has team members having to pay for travel and other expenses out of pocket, Mm. that is an inequitable financial practice. And it assumes that your team members have the financial space, credit, savings, disposable cash, however you want to name it, to front the business of the organization and be paid for at a different clip rather than giving them the tools that they need so that they can make it happen, which puts that individual in a funky position Mm -hmm. because then they have to come hat in hand if they can't actually do that and reveal what is private that they should not have to bring to work. So when you think about that internal advocate, Andrew, It is really having the person that opens that door for you. It is important to that person's and in that individual's ability to be able to move and to navigate and maneuver, but as important are making sure that the actual structure, the infrastructure that is set up to make sure that people in the organization succeed is not loose and sand-like 
for you professionals of color, particularly black professionals, when it is already baked brick and mortar for your white professionals in your organization. Yeah, man, there's a lot there. So to your point, like my my family, I didn't grow up in a place where my parents they weren't movers and shakers, right? You know, my mom, my mom's a teacher, my dad was a pastor, right? Unless I wanted a job in the church or right. to teach second grade, I, I wasn't going to get much help there, right? But the organization that I that I worked in early in my career, they were incredibly intentional about growth. Like they they had a chief talent officer, and part of her, you know the way she worked was to build systems so that everyone in the organization had an opportunity for some sort of mentoring relationship. And then also on a more informal basis, this idea of, you know, we're going to create sponsors out of the senior, you know, mid to senior level executives throughout the organization and coach them to identify and start to build talent. Right. I do think you're right that if you don't have, if it's not part of the DNA of the organization, it's really hard for people to go seek that out because first it of is. all, you might not even know what it's called, right? Or that it's I mean, a thing that exists, right? Absolutely. I didn't know it existed. I want to be real clear, Andrew, about that. I did not know it existed. And let me just be real frank with the <laughs> listeners right now under the sound of my voice. I went to a real swanky undergrad and graduate school with a lot of wealthy people with kings and queens of foreign countries, wealthy and I didn't have any idea that I had an access, I had access to a network that was right there. Cause I didn't even know what it meant to know to access it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so if I didn't have a person, if I didn't have one, number one, have my own internal driver, which by the way, everybody does not have, and it is not yeah. it, across all of us. Yeah. Everybody does not have that internal thing that turns on and makes you go. Okay. Um, but if I did not have that internal driver, that hunger, to pursue, I didn't know what I was pursuing, okay? You two, I just didn't, I didn't, friends, I didn't know, I didn't know what I was pursuing. But to pursue, then I would not have had that extra oomph when things got really hard. But to your point, I wish I had that chief talent officer who laid that road early enough. That was not my first organizational or second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth. No, no times. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, to be transparent, this was at a for-profit organization, right? Mm -hmm. So because they, they've done the math and they understand that when you invest in talent, the yep. long-term return is off the charts positive, right? Absolutely. But find me a nonprofit that feels like they have the space in their budget to do something like that, right? I know of maybe two, you know? But then your other point about how an organization structures their investment policy so that they're not going to their staff, particularly their staff of color and saying, you got to pay for your own training, travel. I, I was on the board of an organization a couple years ago, I'm not going to name them. But when I walked into one of my first board meetings and we started talking financials, someone brought up that, you know, the idea of could we buy new computers for staff? Okay, well, you know, how old are the computers we have today? And the executive director turned and looked at me and she said, I have to ask every one of my staff members to bring their own computer to work. I work somewhere like that too. And I like, it's the first time I had ever heard that. Right. Uh -huh. And you know, this was an organization that deals with underserved communities uh -huh. and, you know, part of their, you know, their entire mission is to lift people out of poverty. And I'm thinking like, how can we live authentically in this mission? If part of what I'm saying to you every day is in order to do your work, you got to kind of pay your own way. I mean, that just seems wrong, you know? Yep. But how do we, so, how, so I guess the question is, how do we start to operationalize this other idea 
of you know the fact that that's not okay when an organization will say but we don't have the budget right Ooh. so what what are you know in my mind it's you don't have the budget to buy everybody one today but go buy one damn it no. <laughs> uh, start a and then the next the next time there's free cash flow buy another one right i'd or like to hear, i'd like to hear kashana's response to just that concept of you know with two million nonprofits <laughs> in the united states and most of them are very small um, most of them don't have chief talent officer. Most of them don't have an HR director. The executive directors are serving in that function in most cases. But, but I truly believe that it's possible uh, for small organizations to focus time and resources in this area of diversity without having to, to, to hire that, that chief talent person. Uh, I think it can be done internally. Uh, I love the concept, Shana, of, of that internal advocate. Other ideas like that, think about those small yeah. nonprofits that are out there that, that need to move into this space and need to be bold about it. What types of things can we do that don't cost a lot of money? I mean, I think the wonderful thing about that is that there's so much on these good interwebs. The internet is a <laughs> treasure trove of free information. It's starting with YouTube University. I mean, there is just so much, there's so many resources that are available, frameworks that are now free um, open, open sourced um, information, there are, you know, a number of ways that an executive director or a small team can approach building in practices into their organization. But the first way that's the free 99 way is to make it a number one priority yeah. through which all business is run. So you need vendors because you're dealing with an organization, your organization right, you know, is dealing with, with young people and with children who are affected um, by the foster care system or in and whatever the case, you know, sorry for not knowing your mission down to the penny, but in that, in the system, in some way, shape or form, that means you have vendors. That means there's transportation. That means you have to have food. That means you're interacting with so many different entities outside of your organization. Yep. So, running that same exact lens uh, through that the lens of diversity means, are we making sure that the vendors that we hire, at least a certain percentage of them, are run by women of color, people of color, women, et cetera? Like it. Same for food, same for transportation. Same, that's just one vein. As we look at the systems that we buy, are we vetting to make sure the leadership teams of those companies that we are gonna pay our good money to are actually invested in their own staff and teams. Oh no, we'll take our business someplace else. You know why? Because there are a bazillion of you. Thank you very much. Times every practice. And so taking that approach, even if you, because you know, you can't, you can't force people to be different, to be clear. But taking that approach from, the, from your policies, your practices, your norms in your organization, all of that is, is free 99 to low cost. It might hurt some feelings, you might burn some social capital, which has a cost. Free 99. I like that. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> we'll get it back. And so. I'm going to steal that from you. Come on, take it. Free 99. You know, like these are the things that are free 99. And so then you move to the things that are lower cost. And it might be looking at things that you want to invest in. To Andrew's point about as cash flow frees up, here's how we prioritize. It might be making that a priority at the board. Part of the board's job is to make sure an organization is healthy. Mm. And so if your team members in your organization, which the chief executive is charged with operationalizing back to that, are unhealthy, 
in the resources that are available to them, in their ability to do, to do their jobs with excellence, in their ability to accelerate mission, then a board member's charge has got to be, how do we make sure that the team has what they need to be healthy at work? Because health, we think of that as heart health, mind health, body health, but also having to bring that additional burden with you to work of having to figure it out just to do your job, that creates an unhealthy environment. And so when you when I look at it in that from that perspective, then that to me still elevates us to the things that don't cost us yet. And it releases the burden of the solution for something that is actually a strategic decision. We invest in our people is a strategic decision. That's the stake in the ground. And it elevates it to the level of the board, which in Andrew's earlier question about really thinking about how to diversify boards, that is a question to ask, to probe, if potential board members actually really understand where they are on their arc and their journey around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social justice. Good probing question, because it's a practice question. It doesn't have to do with people. It's the way we interact and, and engage and exchange in our work. Yes, very so, good. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the funding side of our work. Absolutely. Okay. I, I read an article this morning that Vuli has written, I don't know, in the last couple of days, let's say, right? I, I don't know yeah. exactly what it was dated. And, you know, there, there's some pretty direct, pretty powerful recommendations that he put forward about how, how we start to change some of the systemic issues uh, in our industry, and, and particularly around, around um, this issue of sort of the embedded racism in, the, in our mm-hmm. culture. And one of the things that, that I think may be controversial is this idea that he had that in order to really embrace equity and inclusion, an organization needs to be willing to, um, to do things like sharing their donors uh, with other organizations in the community that might benefit from them, like saying no to certain gifts if they think that they might be better served uh, in another organization that's, that's, you know, a community organization, things like that. You know, so often I feel like nonprofit organizations approach funding as a zero sum game. Either we win and they lose or they win and we lose. Right. Do you have a point of view uh, on these ideas? Absolutely. First of all, Vu and I go together. That, that is <laughs> like, you know, um, so we agree on many things. And one of the things that he, that he wrote in this week's article that, that I agree with him wholeheartedly on is the idea that you, you can say no to a gift, you know. I just did this yesterday with a client where I was coaching them through, their entire model was in-person, uh, work that they were doing with young people and they had to go completely virtual. And one of the uh, potential uh, sponsors that they're looking at still closing, um, the company doesn't align with their values at all. And I said, the answer is no. You say no. And then you go to the company that does that work that you want. Their CEO is magnificent. She's magnetic, completely compelling. You're going to get in that door. Tell the board member who got you this introduction, ask them to help you with this one because you can say no to a gift. And I learned that early days from an early role I had at an organization called Build, uh, which is a social venture based out of the Bay. And Suzanne, my then CEO, McKinney Clark said no to a $50,000 gift from a funder. No at a cocktail party. I thought I was going to fall all the way out, okay? How much had I been drinking? I wasn't, all the way out. She said no because she knew that that particular funder had the capacity 
to give an initial gift of seven figures or more. Mm. You're not going to give me go away money. Mm-mm. Not when you say that you fund what we do. Let's come to the table and figure out how to get you to yes. That was my early days entree to, oh, I can, I can say no. All right. Let me say no. And the first time that I ever said no to a gift myself was so freeing. <laughs> so I think organizations can say no because we tend to be feel hamstrung by our funders. And instead of seeing them as partners who have the gas in the car that, that we are already driving and have the GPS for, we see them as giving us the keys to the car already filled up with gas and destination set. And that's not a partnership. That's when my daughter is of age and I give her her first car. She's going to get a car with a full <laughs> tank of gas on my insurance, the car that I pick, right? That's not the relationship that we want. So I agree with him wholeheartedly there. I also think that this zero-sum game is, is wild because the reality is if more organizations, before they started, y'all, this might be controversial, before they started, actually look to see if there's any other organizations doing anything close to their idea in the world. They might just become a donor and sit at home. That's right. Yes. Instead, you open up, your mission looks exactly like Susie and Jenny and Wayne and Keith down the street. Each of you barely can get above $200,000 for your budget, as opposed to if you had gone to the person who started first, or second and said, I love what you're doing. I'd love to get involved. Get involved, learn, get on the board, understand. The board helps to shape the mission for the organization. People think that organizations are there. So no, it's community good once it's given out into the world. Once you sign and get that thing approved by the IRS. And so I think the zero sum game comes from the fact that there are lots of organizations that are well-meaning, but not well-placed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's go a little bit further on this. What do you say to the executive director or the CEO who says, I don't feel like foundation a who funds us today is aligned with our mission. They might talk a good game, but they're not living their commitment, particularly to being a, an equity based and diverse culture, but they make up 40% of my budget. How do I say no to that, right? Now, I know what you're going to say on the first of all, and, and we totally agree with you, but say it anyway. First of all, why does Foundation A, whose values you do not agree with, comprise 40% of your budget? Where, where do we go wrong here? Where do we take a left turn when we really meant to, to follow the road straight? That's the first thing. That, that, and it happens so frequently that it doesn't blow my mind anymore. It still makes me, you know how The Rock raises one eyebrow, friends? It still, if I could raise one eyebrow like The Rock, I think I would have a complete future ahead of me, just so y'all know, okay? It makes me raise an eyebrow. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it sounds to me like there are some strategic choices you're going to have to make in your strategic plan for your next round and iteration on turning a ship. If anybody has ever been on a cruise before, though the cruise industry, you know, before COVID hit, it was a whole mess anyway. Now it's even worse. <laughs> if you've ever been on a cruise and you've ever got to watch the cruise, the cruise ship leave its port, it has tugboats on the side, both sides. These little tugboats seem pretty harmless. They're tiny dots compared to the size of a cruise ship. But together, they pull that bad boy out of port, they can turn it, and they can move it in another direction. And so if you are feeling like you are stuck on a cruise ship as opposed to driving that cruise ship as an organization because you are 
um, beholden and you feel beholden to a funder that is comprising, you know, a huge chunk of your budget sounds to me like you and the board need to get together and start to tug both that thing in another direction. And that means thinking strategically with laser focus, who is going to see this mission as critical and urgent and have I articulated, have I articulated why us, why now, why urgent? Have I made the case? Have I fallen lax because 40% y'all, that's a heck of a lot of cushion, okay? I might get relaxed with 40% yeah. as one funder. So have I fallen on the, the shoulders of doing the work and not thinking innovatively and thinking ahead and, and re-grasping re that energy you had when you first thought about starting the organization? So let's keep playing this scenario out. What would you say or, or how do you respond to then a, a CEO that says, okay, I want to do that. I know it's the right thing to do. It means that for six months, for 12 months, I may have to shut a program down. I may yeah. have to serve fewer families. I may have to, you know, whatever. I don't know a better way to say this. It's going to sound a little crass, but at what point do, you, do we say the morally right thing to do that also might be operationally painful? Like how, how do we balance those things? My dad used to always say, you either learn to pay or you pay to learn. <laughs> okay. Uh, look, take yeah. it how you want, okay? <laughs> and so what I would say is having a few months to a year of pain, taking pause on a program so that you can right side and right size your funding, your staffing, your strategic bets as an organization will allow you the momentary pause to assess without the pressure of the, the funding reports, because that's a pressure for us, right? Allow you to assess, are we actually at our highest use and purpose with this program? Is this actually getting us to the outcomes that we are seeking, or are these lots of activities and outputs? It gives you the time to pause. Or do we have the right people doing the things that will propel us and keep us current and keep us in focus of what is happening in our community? Are we nimble? enough to pivot if something like a global pandemic, an economic crisis, bodies falling on the street, if it lands in my lap today. Mm -hmm. And if you are not thinking about that as a leader of an organization, that means you are very focused on the now and you're not looking down the road. And Roy, that's where I say that, that, that gift you have, I know it's a physical curse sometimes because I, I feel your pain on that one. But that means you have to surround yourself with folks who are implementers. That's right. Us folk who our minds work a mile a minute, the ideas come faster than we can even get them out. And so as the leader of that organization, you have to be looking down the road and you've got to have your team around you who are a combination of tacticians and strategists to pull that whole new idea together and then move forward. And you owe it to the community, both your internal community of your team and your donor family, as well as the communities you are serving to articulate the pain. Hmm. And to name, we are doing this in service of this, hmm. in service of why. Come along with us on the ride. We know it's gonna be a struggle for the next few months. Here's how we plan to partner with this organization that looks just like ours down the street to help while we make some adjustments. But a lot of times, particularly our executive leaders are trying to just go, 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 go. They're on the hamster wheel of busy so fast that they're not able to slow down just a clip 
to be able to even have that as a thought. So hopefully this will allow folks to be able to slow down just a minute. And I think that's happening, y'all, for many organizational leaders right now, um, not just what has happened over the last couple of weeks that has been like a lava pool that has bubbled up to the surface yet again, because the block has always been hot. I just want y'all to know, okay? But that coupled with a global pandemic that has literally put us on our butts at home, even though we're crazy busy, we have had to be forced to contend with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully that will allow some leaders to bubble up to the surface mm -hmm. as having come out with some clear, actionable moves and bets on their organizations and on the people who lead those organizations on the teams that do the work in service of those organizations. I That's think right about that. That's golden there. So Kashana, I could sit here and talk to you for like another four hours. Um, <laughs> but we, we are an hour in now, so we, we probably do need to close up this particular conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for sharing with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're grateful for, for your insights and for your voice in the community. If somebody wants to connect with you, wants to know more, what's the best way for people to reach you? Absolutely. So you can reach me across all platforms at Fund Diva. So F-U-N-D-D-I-V-A. That's like fundraising diva. Um, <laughs> you can check me out on my website, kashanaco.com. And if you want, you can go and get a pre-copy of my book. They're up for pre-order now. Hey, I'm new here .com, where I'll be talking awesome. about all this stuff about management and leadership. Go get the book. We'll link to it in the show notes. Kashana, thank you again for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.